Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for your patience with our last episode being a little bit behind schedule, as has been the theme for the last little uh, (laughs) bit of our lives. It's just been uh, utter chaos. Katrina's body keeps falling apart. (laughs) Family members keep deciding that they want to have personal tragedies that affect us as well, emotionally and physically. Yeah. Well, I don't know about physically, mentally, emotionally. (laughs) I did, but emotionally and mentally, like, so related. I didn't want to be like, that's just redundant, Jeff. So I said something that doesn't even make sense, except for, you know. Well, I'm like, I feel like physically it's also upsetting uh, when something bad happens to family. Yeah, you feel it in your body. So, yeah, my back is still healing, uh, but (laughs) definitely it's getting better. We're recording this with me still on the ground, but I am not on narcotics this time. Unfortunately for us all. Just kidding. The difference between you on and off narcotics is you are back to your like quick and peppy, like rapid fire speed. I feel like you were just kind of like were slowed down slightly. I was. You know, but still like funny, still, you know, like your same self, but just on on slower speed. So if you listen at 1.5 or two times speed, maybe she sounded normal and you're like, wait, I thought I was listening at 1.5 or two times speed. Why does Jeff sound like he's on crystal meth and <laughs> Katrina sounds totally normal? Because that is... Every episode of our podcast. I did think it was funny as I was like doing the editing at the beginning. I was very like giggly. Yeah. And I was like, adorable. So cute. But definitely. (laughs) Drugged up Katrina. Katrina. Adorable. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to give a big thank you to people who have been leaving five star reviews on Spotify and possibly other platforms. It's like harder to see. Uh, It really helps us out. I know that not everyone feels totally comfortable or motivated to write a review. So even leaving a star rating helps us out and lets us know that you're liking what we're creating. So we really appreciate it. And if you are realizing right now as you're listening, oh, I've never left them like a five star rating or a rating. I won't tell you. I won't tell you what number of stars to give us. Listen, I will tell you right now. If you don't think we deserve a five star rating before you go and rate us, reach out to us on Instagram and tell us what it would take for you to want to give us a five-star rating to give us that feedback that we could do to make the podcast better. And then also we'll incorporate those things and report back to you. And then when we've deserved it, we would like you to go and leave us a five-star rating because it does really help. And if you've left us a rating on one platform like iTunes, but not on Spotify, you know, double dip, do it on both helps us out. And I will say this, I'm very grateful as like a non Spotify user to know that Katrina was able to find a place to see the reviews that we get on Spotify because I've heard it's a thing, but I've never known how to like access it. I don't think there's written reviews there at all, right? On Spotify. Not that I can see, no. Right. So if there are, if you're writing reviews on Spotify and they're just beautiful and glowing, tell us how we can see them so so that we can read them on the podcast because that's what I do with the ones that are on iTunes. The written reviews, again, we don't expect you to do a written review, but if you do, so far we've read every one that has come in that we know about on, on the podcast and we haven't had a new one since the last time we did it. So we would love to read it. We have a fifth Friday coming up in June. 
We're going to be asking our Patreon patrons for suggestions for that live, which will be on June 30th. That date is a bit tentative at the moment. Obviously, we want to have the fifth Friday be on the fifth Friday of the month, but it will be summertime. And Jeff and I have family that we are usually traveling to see. I don't have uh, a solid schedule yet for where I'm going to be. And we're both going to be doing summer semester classes, right? Yes. Because we're dorks. But our patrons on Patreon will be picking a topic and it might not be fables. We shall see. We've got some other topics that we're interested in exploring or tales that we want to retell for everyone that aren't fables. And so we're going to see if a live event will be a good time for those. And see if there is a theme that matches the day of the week's first letter so that we can still make it alliterative. Yes, indeed. Or or not. Who knows? I can't think of one. Thor's Day is Norse mythology. (laughs) Yeah. Sunday Stories with the Stars. Sunday Stories with the Stars. I like that. With special guest Brad Pitt. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not the star. So it should be a lot of fun, as it has been every time we've done a live. So looking forward to that already. But today is our next episode of our Snow White series. Trigger warning Mm. for this episode. Very needed. Yeah. Jeff, let me know if I miss any that are in your story. (laughs) Um, So infanticide, Mm -hmm. uh, child abuse, Mm -hmm. physical assault, body mutilation, suicide, and felicide, which is a child killed by parents. I didn't know there was a such a specific term. But alas, here we are. That's a lot of stuff. But I promise uh, this episode will still be fun. <laughs> now I'm wondering, dang. With content warnings like that, how could it not be? <laughs> Jeez. So anyway, Snow White series. <laughs> so fun. We highly recommend that you go back and listen to the other episodes in the series first to get the absolute most out of what we're talking about. This episode and the stories that we tell can still be enjoyed if you haven't listened to the other episodes, so don't stress about it. But today we are going to be tying in work from the Apple of Discord, um, the Trojan War episode. I promised that it would be relevant. (laughs) The other episodes in this series are The Lay of Eliduk, which is our medieval source for the next episode in our series, which was Gold Tree and Silver Tree, where mm. we have the polygamist Snow White tales. There are two of them. And those are the tales when I was writing the title for them that sounded like clickbait, which I hate it when stuff sounds like, look at this crazy thing. And then you click on it and it isn't crazy like at all. And it sounds really misleading. But no, Gold Tree and Silver Tree is legit polygamy to the point where the collector of the tales in the 1800s was like, um, I'm scandalized. So great episode. A great episode. And like of these episodes, one of the more wholesome ones, honestly, <laughs> like the most wholesome, like the stories. Well, at least I remember the story that Gold Tree and Silver Tree, the one that I retold. Yeah. There is still some messed up stuff in there, like obviously. Oh, yeah. But it there's so much like, like just wholesome happy good stuff that like you don't see in other tales it's like definitely worth a watch that's one of my one of my favorite episodes of our podcast that we've done yeah 
ever, but especially like within the past year. And in this series so far, it's my favorite of them in the Snow White series. My sister would want us to point out she was not a fan of the second story, which was Lysier Kiek, the King of Ireland's daughter. She was not happy that the dad who did something despicable in the story. Mm, yeah. His uh, like some uh, body mutilation to his daughter. And then he kind of got rewarded at the end of the story. My sister was like, I'm not a fan of this yeah, dude. That was Which gross. I'm like, that's fair to not be a fan of that dude. But well, the only thing I didn't like about that story was the way you pronounce Lysier Kiek every time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to put this out as a little teaser for those of you listening to in, incentivize you to go and listen to it. There is a band of roaming, talking cats in that yes. story. Yes. Yes. There should be in all stories. Frankly. Yeah. I mean, if you're not already leaving this episode to go and listen to that one now, I don't know what's wrong with you. You've either already listened to it or you are an enemy to joy. <laughs> <laughs> and also, by the way... Some of the stuff that happens in those stories is going to be important to what we're talking about today, uh, because today we're going to be talking about a magical object motif that is found in very many Snow White tales, but important to mention, not all of them. We're going to be talking about magic mirrors. Mirror, mirror on the wall. I say that that's what we're going to be talking about today, but... We're only going to see, I think, one mirror in this tales that we're telling today. And we're going to be looking at, mostly we're going to be talking about mirror alternatives in the story. Mm. To discuss kind of like the, the purpose that this magical item serves when we're looking at the Snow White tale that we're like most familiar with. So it's going to be several stories. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm a fan of magical and or cursed items. Mostly, I'm more of a fan of magical items, but cursed items are also interesting. I feel like cursed items are better when they're happening to other people. So yeah. In the Snow White tale that we are probably most familiar with, the mirror serves two purposes in the narrative. The first purpose is to communicate vanity. So if you're watching a movie and you see somebody holding a mirror, it's to communicate to the audience normally like, this person is vain. And we have several stories that we're familiar with that have created that in our minds. One of which is Snow White. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that is like much vainer than staring straight into a mirror and being like, tell me I'm hot. Yeah. Tell me I'm hot or I'm going to kill somebody. Yeah. And my mirror refuses to respond every time. So another story that comes to mind about vanity that I'm going to be retelling comes from Ovid. I know that we've been talking a lot about Greek and Roman mythology in this series, and that is the situation with the cultural soup of Western Europe. But really quickly, a tale by Ovid that people might be familiar with, it's the story of Narcissus. This tale has versions that predate Ovid, which, by the way, I've been saying Ovid my whole life. <laughs> and after I retold the tale of Arachne last episode jeff was saying ovid and i was like in my head 
have I been saying this wrong the whole time? Why hasn't anyone stopped me from making a fool of myself? And I looked it up and it is indeed Ovid. So I am going to have to give up uh, podcasting. <laughs> I don't know why. Why do I keep trying? I don't know. I have heard people say it both ways. Well, Google was like, it's Ovid. And I was like, great, super duper. I just sound ignorant. If Ovid didn't want us to mispronounce his name, maybe he shouldn't have spelled it with an O. (laughs) Yep. So uh, one of the versions of the story of Narcissus can be found in Ovid's Metamorphoses in book three. And I am going to retell it because I am deeply enjoying reading uh, Metamorphoses for these episodes. While on the subject of pronunciation as well, I've always heard when you're talking about this mythical figure, and I could be wrong, Narcissus is like you put the emphasis as Narcissus when it's this person. Narcissus. Which might be wrong. I'm going to say it the way that my mouth can do it the best. Do that. So in book three of metamorphosis. (laughs) (laughs) So once the river god Cephasus and a water nymph, Laope, embraced in the winding stream and the child of this union was Narcissus. Narcissus. (laughs) However, we are going to pronounce that. So... When this beauteous nymph, I'm quoting, so when this beauteous nymph, which is what I would like to, as a mother, always be referred to as well, um, (laughs) gave birth to this child, she brought him to a seer to kind of like find out like, what is his fate? You know, what, what can we expect, you know, in his life? And the seer replied... This child will live to reach well-ripened age if he never knows himself, which is so interesting of a prophecy. And as often happens in these stories, anytime there's like some prophecy that is given, uh, it's not very helpful. Yeah. What does this mean? That when he turns 18, we can't let him go backpacking through Europe to find himself? What? (laughs) What are we supposed to do about this? That's like exactly. That is exactly what he's not supposed to do. Like, never find yourself, buddy. Just never go backpacking alone. That's the moral of the story. Just live up to the social construct and expectations that are foisted upon you from your parents and the rest of your surroundings and never think about who you are and what you truly want. And bad things won't happen. Trust us. That's the way to do it. That's how you live your life. Love the oracles. So in here it says, Long did the saying of the prophet seem but empty words but what befell proved its truth. So when Narcissus had reached his 16th year, he was neither a boy or a man. So I love this. It said many youths and many maidens sought his love. Hold on to that. That's important for later. And so it says in that slender form was pride so cold that no youth, no maiden touched his heart. So like he basically was just like so self-absorbed and conceited already that he wasn't interested in like other people. Other people were kind of beneath him. So one day Narcissus was out hunting and it said a certain nymph of strange speech beheld him Mm. resounding 
Echo. So here's a quick little story about Echo. Side story about Echo. So sometimes Zeus, we know him, we're familiar. He likes hmm. to come down into like the forest or the rivers and he finds the nymphs that are out there and he just wants to be hooking up. But sometimes his wife finds out and she hmm. comes looking for him. So what Echo would be tasked to do so that the other nymphs could like finish enjoying Zeus was she had to distract Hera. So while she was distracting Hera, like she would just be talking, talking, talking for a really long time, enough time for the nymphs to finish what they were doing with Zeus, for Zeus to run off and for everybody to kind of like scatter. And listen, Echo, we should not be using our powers of talking <laughs> for helping other people have an affair. Listen, that's not cool, girl. That's not girl code. We don't do that. Like, he's a married man. And our skill to talk and trap people, it's a gift, but not if we use it for evil. So if someone is using this podcast to distract their significant <laughs> other while having an affair, get out. Cut it out. That's not why I'm talking. I absolutely have had people say to me that they love bringing me into potentially awkward situations because I can just talk my way just right through whatever their family drama is. I'm just talking about whatever side topic in the world, whatever. They can get through the family dinner without it turning into a fight between the two of them. They never have to speak directly to each other because I won't let that happen. If I'm with you, you don't ever have to speak. That's the deal that I made with my <laughs> husband. He's like, I don't want to have to talk to people. But sometimes I have to leave the house. Can you come with me? That way you'll talk to them. And I was like, absolutely. That's my gift. And that was Echo's gift until yeah. she used it for evil. I, was, I haven't heard your husband's voice since he said I do on your wedding day, <laughs> which is really funny because I wasn't at your wedding. <laughs> you were really, you were, yeah, I was going to say, you were really quiet at my wedding too. <laughs> I was just very stoic that was, standing there. Yeah. Stiff as a board, you might say. Yeah. I would definitely say. Anyway. So when Hera figured out what Echo was doing and why she was doing it, she wasn't happy about that. Mm. She didn't feel good about it. And so she cursed Echo that she would have to hold her peace when others spoke and she could not begin to speak until others had addressed her and it was only to repeat the last words that they had said. Imagine how you would feel. <laughs> that would be so bad for me. I couldn't. That That is what would be the end of me. Not unrequited love. It would be like, if I can't talk, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> At least you could say the last few words of what the person before you had said, which is another one of your talents. That's true. I do. But the repeat. only thing that you could yeah. say, that would be difficult. For yeah. You. I would still be able to kind of, you know, be an active listener of just like nodding and saying it and then just repeating the thing that they just said and be like, mm, mm, mm. but I wouldn't be able to get to uh, state my opinions on things. That'd be very hard for me. And this podcast would suffer greatly for that curse. Yeah, <laughs> because it would just be you talking and me just repeating what you said. The worst podcast in the world. I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's what the reviews would say. <laughs> but they'd still be five stars out of pity. Um, so she said, that tongue of yours by which I have been tricked shall have its power curtailed and enjoy the briefest use of speech. Mm. Which, yeah, yikes. So when Echo saw Narcissus wandering through the fields, like immediately she was just like, oh my gosh, he is so beautiful. I am in love with him, but how do I get him to talk to me? And so she was kind of like following him, trying to get him to notice her enough that he would say something to her. So she was like following him a little bit until he was like, is anybody here? And she repeated back, here. Ooh, she found a loophole. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. And so he was like yelling out, come. And she was like, come. And he was like, what? No, you come to me. So he like couldn't figure out where she was. So he said, here, let us meet. And she answered back gladly, let us meet. And she burst forth from like the forest and immediately like clung to him, like grabbed him. And he, having pushed away men and women alike off of him, not interested, you know, she immediately was like, oh, he's calling to me. He wants me. She grabbed him and he was like, whoa, 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 no, because he's. Not into that. So he was like, um, no, thank you. And just like spurned her advances. And I'm like, this is so sad because he's like, hands off, embrace me not. May I die before I give you power over me. And then she replied, I give you power over me. Which I'm like, oh, that's so sad. Anyway, her heart was broken Mm -hmm. by him and she left. And there are some versions of this story where... It is this rejection of her that it's like Aphrodite sees this rejection and is like heartbroken on behalf of Echo, who's like wasting away in pain, missing him, that Aphrodite is like, oh, this will not stand. How dare this boy like turn away love from Echo? I'm going to punish him. But that is not... What happens in this story? There's only like one sentence that kind of explains why Narcissus gets cursed, but it does not have anything to do with Echo. Because the line is, Thus had Narcissus mocked her, thus had he mocked other nymphs of the waves or mountains, thus had he mocked the companions of men. So like in that sentence, it basically explains like, it's not just that he did this to Echo. That's not... He had, he had spurned the advances of lots of different... Everyone. Yeah, everyone. And other nymphs. So it wasn't even like an insult on them. And here's the line. It says, At last one of these scorned youth, lifting up his hands to heaven, prayed, So may he himself love and not gain the thing he loves. And the goddess Nemesis who is a different aspect of Aphrodite, heard his righteous prayer. So this is a really quick reference back to a different uh, version of the tale where a man has fallen in love with Narcissus, like another youth has fallen in love with Narcissus, and he is spurned, but to the point of him deciding that he was going to kill himself. And so right before he committed suicide, his last prayer 
was to Nemesis, the goddess of revenge. And he had said, so may he himself love and not gain the thing he loves. And so I find that really interesting just because this story that I had thought I knew and had heard before in my life, it had been like heterosexually coded Mm -hmm. to where it was like, oh, no, 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 this is about Echo. Echo was like so in love with him, but her little girly heart got broken. And so this boy was like punished. And it took out the fact that it was a man that loved Narcissus. Which is interesting because there is there's another tale that dates back to later than Ovid, where instead of Narcissus falling in love with himself, they even have that he fell in love with his twin sister. So it was very much like trying to move away from this like man on man love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I guess even a man finding himself as another man so beautiful that he fell in love with himself was still too homosexually coded or like not even coded. It was too homoerotic for people. And so I just want to I'm like, I'm going to I want to put the homosexuality back in this story (laughs) for all of our listeners, because, yeah, it was it was not the sadness of Echo like, oh, Echo is so tragic that the goddesses took pity on her no it was this other guy who was so sad that he committed suicide and then made this prayer Mm. anyway so nemesis knew of a clear pool with silvery bright water that no shepherds went to no herds or flocks ever watered at and not even any birds knew about this pool and so it was so clear so pristine, so still, that mm-hmm. it was a perfect reflective surface. Almost like a mirror. <laughs> it said grass grew all around its edge, but not a leaf fell on its water. I'm like, oh, this is a really mm, special, special pond. So Nemesis led a chase that would go by this pond of water. I'm assuming with an animal that Narcissus was hunting. And so he was out there, he got thirsty, and then he found this pool of water. But before he could stick his hand in to scoop up any water, he saw his reflection. And I just want to read this description that is in the version of this book that I have that is translated by Frank Justice Miller. Just because I want to point out that because it's a translation, there might be other translations for the words I'm about to read, but I do find the word choice interesting. Prone on the ground, he gazed at his eyes, twin stars, and his locks worthy of Bacchus, worthy of Apollo, on his smooth cheeks, his ivory neck, the glorious beauty of his face, the blush mingled with snowy white. Mm. (laughs) i was like oh interesting uh interesting word choice there so he is just gazing on himself and i absolutely love the way that like ovid is just like describing him staring at himself book is very poetically beautiful i definitely recommend that people (laughs) read the classics they're incredible I won't linger on it too much, but just, you know, he is lamenting. Narcissus himself is like lamenting that this other person that he's fallen in love with because he 
doesn't quite seem to understand that it is himself. He thinks that it's like another person who's like trapped between this like layer. And when he leans forward to try to kiss himself, he can see the other person leaning in to kiss him back to like give him the same love back that he was like trying to Mm -hmm. display. So he knew that this person wasn't rejecting him. But the second that his lips touched the water, the person would disappear. Anytime he reached out to caress him, anytime, you know, he made any movement, when he cried, he could see the tears on the other person's face until those tears hit the water and then he would lose sight of himself. So he's sitting there lamenting and at one point in his extreme sadness, he starts to like he rips off his tunic and he's like hitting his own chest and it said his breast when it is struck takes on a delicate glow chest is apples sometimes though white in part flush red in other part which again apple white white and red just like those images so as he was sitting there he wasn't eating, wasn't drinking, wasn't taking care of himself. And Ovid writes about how the the heat and the passionate love that he had inside of himself for this other person was just like burning him up from the inside until he started to weather away. And Echo actually was there watching this happen to him. It said, but when she saw it, though still angry and unforgetful, she felt pity. And as often as the poor boy says, alas, again, with an answering utterance, she cries, alas. And as his hands beat his shoulder, she gives back the same sounds of woe. Mm. And so I love that Ovid said that because, and that she's still a part of the story, because it is like the pain that he's feeling for this, like, unreachable love she's feeling it too for him and she has like full empathy and is like echoing that back at him and i just i'm like oh this that is beautiful it's so gorgeously beautiful anyway he ends up wasting away and the last thing he says is alas dear boy vainly beloved echoed back by echo beloved Hmm. farewell farewell and then he died. And the kind of sick, twisted thing <laughs> is when he died, his you know spirit went on into the afterlife, but the curse followed him. Oh my gosh. And so there is like a pool in the infernal abodes that he is still hunched over staring at himself in. And I'm like, that's messed up. And then... You know, when it said when his naiad sisters, so those water nymphs, when they eventually like found him and his body, they took him and prepared the funeral pyre. But when they went to burn him, his body was nowhere to be found. In place of his body, they found a flower, its yellow center girt with white petals. And that's the narcissus flower. Mm -hmm. So I had never read Ovid's. I'd only heard other like brief descriptions before in my life. And again, yeah, I thought that it was like, oh, he's being punished for rejecting Echo, which I had only ever heard it that way. And so it was lovely reading and like getting some more research into that. But we have stories like that 
which has like kind of cemented in our minds this idea of like mirrors are connected to vanity. Yeah. The only reason why you would gaze into them is because you are obsessed with yourself. And that is one part of the mirror's job in the story of Snow White, the way that we probably know it best, is that the stepmother has a mirror because she is a vain person. But there have not always been mirrors in the story because the reflective surface that is in there in the story that we know, it has another function and that other function has been served by other objects. For instance, the second purpose that I'm talking about is as a tool for divination. And in Gold Tree and Silver Tree and uh, the King of Ireland's daughter, I won't offend you by saying her, her, her <laughs> name incorrectly again. I'm not saying it was incorrect. It was just the, the, the fun emphasis that you put on it, which I... I teased by saying I didn't like it, but I do like it. But It's like how I love saying the word thick, but like double C's, so it's thick. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, like a guttural cup. You can hear the double C's. Yeah. Yeah. So in Gold Tree and Silver Tree and in Le Sierre Kiek, the King of Ireland's daughter, we did not have a magic mirror. We had a trout in a well. And we explained in the episode that that is actually based on folk tales of the Celtic people about a magic trout in wells that could see the future or provide wise guidance. So the tool in the story that was required to do divination was filled in by the trout. So of course the trout would be the one in the story to tell the wicked person that they weren't the prettiest in the land because it's serving the point of divination which is why it turns into a mirror later on because the purpose of the story later on in history is to point out that like kind of the evils of vanity and the decaying of youth that's that stuff as well and so they needed a magical item that could fill that in as well but before that when the story was more about I mean, there's still a vanity element to it, but mm-hmm. it's more on the divination side of it. The the telling knowledge that is unknown, where you see other items being used. So yeah, it's used as a divination object, an item used to see beyond what is already known. So the person looking into the object or looking at or talking to whatever that object is that's filling in that job wants to know who is the fairest in the yeah. land who right whether because they can't see them it's knowledge that is unknown divination so yeah the trout serves that purpose trouts do divination in that cultural group so that is obviously the item that gets filled in there also a quote from maria tatar in her book the fairest of them all she says transparent glass and reflective glass She mentions transparent glass because she's also Mm -hmm. in that section talking about uh, the glass coffin, which we've not like discussed yet. But just so you know what transparent glass she is talking about. Transparent glass and reflective glass. These two surfaces were not available to storytellers in earlier eras. When we consult the folkloric record, we discover versions of the story in which the mother or stepmother consults in the sun or the moon to determine who ranks higher when it comes to beauty. 
These heavenly bodies draw the story into the orbit of the natural world, reminding us that circadian rhythms and seasonal change served as the motors of fairy tale plots in an earlier age. As sources of illumination, the sun and the moon signal wisdom in ways that link them with patriarchal authority, yet without introducing the narcissistic edge added by the presence of a mirror, representing, reflecting, and also revealing. The mirror is a latter-day bonus that sets up modernism interventions in a tale that originated in pre-modern rural storytelling cultures. So, in other words, before there were mirrors, the way that we know mirrors, not, right. you know, reflective water, but actual reflective glass, the story still worked, but these objects served an additional third purpose that is kind of lost to us now by just using a mirror. And that is how it ties the story into the passage of time. Because the sun and the moon are items that we watch that mark time. And the story is very much about how when a person becomes a mother, they are no longer a maiden. They will age. We all will age. Time will pass. At a certain point, the daughter in that story who marries the prince, who gets married to the chief, who whatever, she will have babies she will age. The passage of time will happen to her as well. And she will also have to grapple with those feelings of the passage of time. And so while mirrors might reflect to us that we are getting older, our minds can also play tricks on us as we're looking into a mirror of we're like, oh, I definitely still look the exact same way that I did when I was 26. It's like, these are lies. Um, But in my mind, it is true. Until for whatever reason, I see a picture of myself and then I'm like, is that me? (laughs) Because your face isn't reversed in a picture of yourself. Yeah, it's true. Um, Or I'm like seeing myself in the action instead of like staring myself straight on. And like, yeah, there's a lot of things that are like different about, you know, when you see a picture of yourself versus when you see. And so mirrors don't even necessarily show us the passage of time either. But when the sun or the moon in this story, like is in place of the mirror or before it's been replaced in the story by a mirror, it is both used as a divination tool and as a symbol of the passage of time that it keeps marching on. We will get older. We will age who is once the child will become a mother, will become a grandmother, will die. And so in these other stories, you see different objects serving different purposes, but the main one throughout is divination. So I have a re- a very quick story. So the book that I'm going to be getting this story from, and it's very brief, but this book has has a lot of Sleeping Beauty stories. It is called Sleeping Beauty's Sleeping Beauty and Snow White Tales from Around the World. And it's by the Sir La Lune fairy tale series by Heidi Ann Heiner. Sir La Lune is an online resource that has a lot, a lot of fairy tale content. All it is is fairy tale content mm-hmm. and catalogs of stories from around the world under certain like tale types. And you can buy 
sections of those tales. So this collection that I'm looking at right here is Sleeping Beauties. So it's stories from around the world of Sleeping Beauty and Snow cool. White tales. Um, they also have Beauty and the Beast, which is we used when we did Beauty and the Beast. And we're going to be using some of the other ones for the series or that we're going to be using other ones for other series that we do because it, they're a really great resource. Also online, you can get like different journal articles and just like blog articles about fairy tales. So excellent resource. I'll try to remember to link it in the description of this episode. We're trying to be better about uh, providing links for people so that they can go to more of the stuff that we talk about. But the story in here that we are going to be using, it's very brief. It is from Morocco, and it is called The Woman and the Sun. It was originally collected in French in 1912, and this version was translated by Heidi Ann Heiner for this series. So there was once a woman who had a daughter that she disliked. <laughs> That's tough. Off to a great start. Off to a great start. Like, oh, this sounds right. So she placed her daughter among her like clay bowls and vessels. And then she brought out pomegranates and milk. And then she turned to look at the sun and she said, what's better, the pomegranate or milk? And the sun replied, that which is with the clay vessels is better than you, than me, and what you bring. So even the sun is saying, like, that child is far greater than, like, you and me. So the woman went home and she placed her daughter among the bags of wheat. And then she brought sour milk and apples. And she asked the sun, what is better, the apples or sour milk? To which the sun replied, that which is with the bags of wheat is better than you, than me, and what you bring. So the woman, growing frustrated and irritated that the son is, you know, divining this, even though she she's not asking it that question, but it understands her intent and her purpose and is kind of like undermining her mm -hmm. by being like, um, I'm going to give you the answer that you don't want to hear, but that's the right answer. I can see into your heart what your true intent is, and I refuse to acknowledge it. So the woman returned back to her house, increasingly irritated, placed her daughter among the bags of coal, and then she brought in whey and peaches, which made me hungry for like peaches and cream. Mm -hmm. mm. That, that's where my mind went to. And I was like, I, want that. <laughs> I was like, it's almost summer. But th the question is, is, is this child better than peaches and cream? We're about to find so, out. Yeah. What is better, the whey or the peaches? She asked the son and the son replied, that which is with the bags of coal is better than you, than me and what you bring. And the woman went to kill her daughter. And that's the end of the story. Yikes. <laughs> I, I did. Uh, there was a trigger warning at the beginning. Yeah. Of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, you know, obviously this story from Morocco included in versions of Snow White because of this element of mother, daughter, child surpassing mother, like in beauty, a feeling of like jealousy, and then turning to an object, obviously in the story, not a mirror, the sun, and asking this like question, and the sun divining 
who is more beautiful. And this tale doesn't end with like a reincarnation of the daughter. Or, I mean, technically we don't even see her killing her daughter. It just says that she went to kill her. And that's like the end of the story. So hopefully in our head canon, we can believe that the daughter escaped and went to live with a band of helpful cats in the desert. Yep. She's living with Arabian sand cats in the desert. She's fine. Yeah, I agree. Yep. And see, this is how stories get rewritten, people, is that somebody hears it, is unsatisfied, so that in their version, they're like, I'm going to change that. Now I, I'm making it mine. Not only do we retell the tales, <laughs> we rewrite them as well. <laughs> What's funny is we normally don't. As much as I want to with yeah. so many, I'm like, um... No, it just like, it's a reflection on the culture that created it. It just is what it is. I can't like me putting my spin on it is just me claiming that like my current cultural understanding is like the superior one and that the story needs to be changed to fit my superior worldview, which is extremely narcissistic. <laughs> yeah. Ethnocentric. Just kidding. Yeah. Ethnocentric. Narcissistic. Yeah. Which. I mean, there's something to be said, you know, for that, that we do tend to lean towards ethnocentricity because we believe that, like, our way of viewing the world is the correct way of viewing the world. If I didn't think that it was the correct way of viewing the world, I would change my view. Yeah, I wouldn't view the world that way if it were incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I can also at the same time be aware that I am doing that and that that is also going to be a problem down the line yeah. or even yeah me claiming that like i know better than the moroccan storytellers how that story should be yeah it's just problematic anyway so that was just a quick short little tale to segue us into kind of an in-between tale we shall see with jeff so the story that Jeff is going to be retelling is Marula and the Mother of Eros. And this is a story that I found inside of The Fairest of Them All by Maria Tatar. And she got this story from a book that was in German um, that was called Greek Fairy Tales and Folk Songs. So this is a Greek story, which I think that we kind of could have guessed by the fact that Jeff found out that Marula is like a Greek equivalent to the name Mary and mother of Eros. I mean, like, <laughs> this is a very, very Greek title. But the book is that this is from is in German. And the story was actually translated by Maria Tatar by she translated it. Oh, wow. Cool. For, for this book, nice. uh, the, the fairest of them all, which is in English. <laughs> Which is why we used this version for the tale. It's funny because I normally, even if I find it inside of like a collection, mm -hmm. I try to figure out, okay, well, where did they, what book did they get it from? Yeah. And then I try it, but it was like, this is a book of Greek fairy tales written in German. Maria Tatar has translated this version. It's the version that you get. Yeah. And I mean, look, Maria Tatar, I trust her to translate anything. We stan. <laughs> We stand, Maria Tatar. Once there was a princess, and she was by far the most beautiful of all the women in the world. So when the mother of Eros was told of this woman's beauty, oh no, she decided to kill her. 
for she could not bear the idea of anyone more beautiful than she was. Already we have murder on the mind, two sentences in to this delightful tale. And Jeff, just really quickly, for for people who are listening, who is the mother of Eros? That is a question I was going to have for you because this story literally every single time just says the mother of Eros. And I did not do any research to look it up because I knew that you would know the answer and would probably tell me. Aphrodite. Uh, Oh, yeah, duh. I actually did know that. We've talked about this on this podcast before, and it makes sense. (laughs) Oh, yes, because in uh, Cupid and Psyche, Eros is Cupid. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. So Aphrodite, mother of Eros, super jealous of this young princess's beauty that she's going to kill her. So what does she do? She disguises herself as an old woman and travels to this princess's castle, and she takes with her an enchanted golden apple bum, bum, bum. and her plan is she's gonna offer to sell the princess this golden apple which i question this plan a little bit but that's okay um i, I see how dare you question the mother of arrows <laughs> so here's the thing and maybe there is some like strategy to this but it's kind of like you're gonna ask someone to buy the thing that you're going to like poison and kill them with you know like that's just like a little at least gift it to them. You know what I mean? If you're going to kill them with it. And this is the point where we tell you that this princess was an orphan. She had no parents, but she did have many brothers who liked to look after her. They were very protective. Very, very protective. Overly protective, some might say. Although, based on the, the <laughs> way this story goes, maybe they weren't so, you know, it wasn't overreaction on their part at all. But they were so protective of her that they would lock her in the palace whenever they would go so that no one would be able to get to her and do any harm. And I'm like, it's locking her in the palace, not doing some sort of emotional harm to her, but whatever. Okay. Yeah. It's it's like, ooh, it smacks of like Rapunzel being like, oh, this person needs to be locked in a tower, kept away from yeah. like everybody. But if they're doing it for good reasons, like to protect her instead of to like hide her, uh, it's complicated. It is complicated. Is there, is there a good reason to lock somebody in a tower? I don't know. Some British kings say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nine out of ten yeah. British kings. <laughs> I say locking people in towers is a good idea. Anyway, it's only important that she was locked in the tower because when the mother of Eros shows up to sell her this golden apple, she's locked in the tower. She can't come out to greet her. So they're like, okay, but princess, she's sold on this apple from the distance of the top of the tower to the yeah. base of the tower. And she's like, man, I want to buy this apple. And so they got to problem solve a little bit. Mother of Eros is like, you know what? Throw down a rope. I'll tie the apple to the rope and you can bring it up. And this is how we will conduct this business transaction. And so that's exactly what they did. Once they had transacted their business, this princess took one bite out of the apple and immediately fell down on the floor unconscious. And when I I like this quote for a reason I will explain, says, quote, that's how the brothers found poor Marula. That was the girl's name. When they return home. It's one of those things that I just love when like they go through a substantial portion of the story and then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this was her name. I don't know why we didn't tell you that before, but we're telling you now. Okay. Just accept it. Because I'm like, couldn't you guys have pulled out another piece of paper, rewritten it so that her name was when she first appeared in this Once there was a princess named Marula and she was by far the most beautiful. Like that is, I mean, I do actually kind of get it. It's like, 
the sentence flows like uh, the gen generic nature of like there was a princess who was the most beautiful princess in all the world. Okay, keep that. And her name was Marula. That's what I want. Like second sentence. Fine. Keep the beauty of that and simplicity and the generality yeah. of that first sentence. Give us the woman's name. Yeah, we need it. And for that matter, the mother of Eros, they don't name her. They just always call the mother of Eros. Refer to, referring to her by the name of someone who's not even in the story. A character in the story is only referred to by, you know, we could go, Katrina, you could go on a rant about this. A man's yeah. name. Yeah. A woman referred to only by her relationship to a man who is not even in the story. Yeah. Who cares about this jabroni? Anyway, so the brothers come home and they find Marula. Brothers don't have names either. So there's a point against Good. sexism or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and they were pretty upset <laughs> at finding their sister, what they thought was dead on the floor. And they see the apple lying with a single bite taken out of it. And they're like, mm, this doesn't just look like the logo on the back of an iPhone. It looks dangerous because they thought the apple was probably poisoned. And so they- Yeah, they're smart. They're smart. They're like, I'm putting some things together. She has partially eaten apple. She's lying down dead. And the apple apparently is still in her mouth because once they take that piece of apple that she'd bitten off out of her mouth, suddenly she was alive again. Boom, baby. Meanwhile, the mother of Eros wanted to know for sure whether or not that beautiful princess had died after taking a bite of the apple. Because it would be hard to see. Like, even if she did, was standing there watching, like, she, could, she fell, like, what happened? Did she just- you know, so she wanted to know for yeah. sure. So what the mother of Eros did was she held a mirror up to the sun and she said, Oh, sun that shines so brightly, let your eyes flash lightly and see the most beautiful woman of all. And so the sun replies, and it's like, you are very beautiful, but Marula does not have an equal on this earth. And when the mother of Eros found out that Marula was not only still alive, but also still more beautiful than her. She was enraged more than ever and went back to the castle. This time with an enchanted ring. Doesn't say whether or not she was in disguise. If it was the same disguise, that has some implications for our poor Marula <laughs> that don't speak well to her um, eyesight or maybe intelligence. Because Self-preservation, yeah. Maybe she's just very quick to forgive. Maybe. I unfortunately know several people who are too quick to forgive. That's true. Because the princess buys this enchanted ring from her. And as soon as she puts the ring on her finger, falls down to the ground, lifeless yet again. When the brothers return home this time, which, I mean, you don't expect that to happen once, to happen twice. Yeah. Very distressing. They didn't notice that the ring on their sister's finger was enchanted. And so they were like, well, there's no obvious sign here as to how she had died. Like a partially eaten apple and a piece of apple dangling out of her mouth. So they were unable to bring her back to life, giving up all hope of restoring her. They put her in a large golden casket, took that casket out into a meadow near the castle and just let it sit there. One day, a prince went out hunting and a little bird flittering around drew his attention to the casket by flying by through the sky and then landing on it. So it, this little bird flies past his face, plops down on the casket and he's like, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. Who put that here? And so he orders his servants to pick up this gold casket that must weigh like an insane. Maybe it was just, you know, uh, gold plated, gold, you know, like. Gold leaf. Yeah, gold leaf. Like it's not solid gold or anything. But anyway, orders his servants to pick up the casket and carry it back to his castle. Because that's a normal thing to do when you come across a casket 
in the middle of a field. <laughs> I want it. Also, I mean, okay, the fact that it was like a gold casket might have had something to do with that. This next part is also kind of like, okay, yeah, that's what you do. So he gets it back to his castle and he opens up the lid, which I guess your curiosity would get the best of you. are like, what am I going to find in here? Is it going to be a dead body? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it'll be someone hot. <laughs> like, no, it's a casket. Yeah. It's like, I don't imagine anything <laughs> that is going to be pleasing to be before me when I open the lid of a casket. But he does. And he gazed in on the beautiful maiden lying within it. And so this too is funny. Quote, unquote. Just by chance, he removed the enchanted ring from her finger. And it's like, just by chance, being code for, as he was robbing the dead (laughs) of their jewelry and riches, she instantly came back to life because, of course, the the enchanted ring had been removed from her finger and she was, you know, relieved from the curse that it had put on her. Yeah. And then he had to act like he wasn't the kind of guy that would steal a gold casket and then rob a dead body. Yeah. And if she did think that he was that kind of a guy, she was super quick to forgive because in the next <laughs> sentence, the prince married that maiden. And after the two had been living together for some time, the young woman became pregnant. How did that happen? And gave birth to twins. That's just what happens when you live together with someone for some time. You know, being in proximity to another human being. Yep. It just gets you pregnant. Yeah. Babies just happen. That's what happened to me. So the prince's mother was incensed absolutely incensed that her son had stopped paying attention to her because he was so devoted to his wife. Oh man, my son is so lame, devoted to his wife, not paying any attention to me. This is another thing that we talk about on the podcast that seems to come up oddly is the whole like boy moms. Yeah. Creepy trope that is still in existence today of like, I'm a boy mom. Nobody can have my son. And it's like, ma'am, that's unhealthy. Yikes. Yeah. This man's mother does not. She's so, again, incensed, which that's the keyword. If you're incensed about it, that's a sign that there's something unhealthy going on here. That there's some incest about it. <laughs> Probably. That's the, that's the old saying. But she was so incensed <laughs> and incested. She was so incensed. <laughs> about it, that she was determined to ruin the life of her daughter-in-law, which is not the healthy way to respond. So one evening, oh my gosh, I forgot about this part of the story and I'm already upset. One evening, this mother (laughs) of the year, grandmother of the year, (laughs) slipped into the daughter-in-law's chambers and found the two children and chopped off their heads. I'm so sorry I made you read that. Then she threw the knife that she'd used to commit these murders onto Marula's bed in order to draw suspicion onto Marula that she was the one that had killed her own children. So it was like so horrible, you know, murdering children, blaming their own mother for it. Yes. And the next morning, the prince discovers this grisly scene and what had happened. And his mom blames Marula for this horrible act. And so immediately he's just like, oh, okay. And he's convinced that Marula was the one that had committed this horrible murder. Yeah. These horrible murders. Which this is not CSI- Greece, like he was not doing it like any thorough search on this. The fact that he's just like, oh, knife on your bed. You did it. You definitely did it. It was the smoking gun of ancient Greece. The bloody knife. Not this is an ancient Greece, but that's true of Greece. Whenever this happened. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was the mother of Eros was involved. 
but she how long was she kicking around until is she still out there she's still she's still out there man in I'm sure you could. I'm sure that you could still find a group that's uh, worshiping her. That's true. So, but continue. This prince, convinced by his mother that his wife had murdered her children and his children, issues a command to have his wife's hands cut off, and for those hands to be sewn up into a sack along with the bodies of their children, and for that sack to be hung around Marula's neck, and in that condition. Marula was banished from the country. Yipes. And so Marula walked and walked and walked. And along the way, she met a monk and she told this monk the entire story. And so the monk went into the bag and he took the heads of the children and put them back onto their bodies. And suddenly the children returned to life. Thank goodness. And he also took Marula's hands from the bag and reattached them to her arms. And then He tapped his staff to the ground, and just like that, a castle appeared out of nowhere. And so he said to Marula, he said, stay here in this castle and live with your children in happiness. I'll come back and check on you from time to time just to see how you're doing. And with that, he disappeared without Marula even having the time to say goodbye or thank you or anything. And so Marula lived in this castle with her children until one day, the husband, who had done terrible things to her. Yeah was out in an expedition with some of his friends and he passed by this castle and he saw his wife, but he didn't recognize her, but she definitely recognized him. Yeah. You don't forget a man like that. And this is a part that I thought was interesting. Following the advice of the monk who was her guardian angel and who had mysteriously appeared just in that moment to tell her this, uh, invited him in with his entourage. So like she sees her husband, probably horrified but then the monk appears tells her invite him in and his entourage and he was like okay so she does that and while the prince is climbing up the stairs with his friends marula told her kids to grab hold of two balls and to throw them while chanting we hope you are well father but we are longing for our grandmother to burst into pieces because she was moved by eros's mother to tell you to punish our mother by cutting off her hands even though it was she who murdered us that's a really weird thing to instruct your children to just like say while they're tossing balls back and forth yeah. to each other. Kids, here's what I need you to do. I need you guys to to juggle uh, when this guy is walking through. And while you're juggling or passing these balls back and forth to each other, I need you to say this very long-winded and specific thing. We hope you are well, Father, because we're longing for a grandmother to be burst into pieces. You know, like, I can't even imagine what chanting that actually yeah, sounds like. Yeah, like doing doing it like, like a jump rope to that. <laughs> we <or laughs> hope you're well, Father, but we are longing for a grandmother to burst into pieces because she's moved by airs. Maybe it sounds better in, in Greek. Greek. It does. I guarantee it. I love that you said it does. I guarantee it. <laughs> it can't sound any worse than it does in English. <laughs> That's how I know. And the prince... When he heard these words and saw these children very creepily playing with (laughs) balls and chanting this song, turns to his friends and says, I want you to know that this is my wife and these are my children. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, why is that your reaction? Be like, hey, guys, I just need you to know right now that. That this is my wife and doing it's like it's not because he's like really proud of them or something. I, I he's like, listen, I, I don't know what you guys uh, have like heard, but I need to come clean about something. 
I know this is a really messed up situation, but I need you to know before you go any further that <laughs> this is my wife and my kids. We're about to have a really awkward dinner. Then, yeah, he told them everything that had happened. He told them the whole story of everything. And then Marula told her husband about what had happened afterwards, how she'd been walking and how she met the monk and how the monk had healed her and her children. And that the monk had also told her that it was Eris's mother that had caused all these problems because she was jealous of her beauty. And so the prince returned to his castle with his wife and his children, but he kept them hidden because there is still a murderer about the castle. And then a few days later, he invited his friends, all of his friends, to a big banquet, which again, banquet implies lots of friends. It's not like a dinner party. It's it's Yeah, lots of food. That's what I'm about. And at this banquet, he revealed everything to these friends and he invited his friends to decide. He's like, now we turn it over to the audience for a vote. What should the punishment <laughs> of my mother be for murdering my children and blaming it on my wife? Yay, sticker in a barrel of tar. Yeah, and that's what they did. They, the, the votes came back resoundingly in favor of putting her in a barrel of tar and setting it on fire while it's floating out at sea. That, that is quite the creative crowd of friends that he has cultivated. Yeah. A little terrifying. A little terrifying. I hope that my friends could come up with as creative a punishment in a similar situation were it to ever happen to me. And it wouldn't because your mother is a gem. She is. She is just amazing. So anyway, going back to the story that is not my life, put it up for a vote. The friends voted, put your mom out to sea in a barrel of tar and set her on fire. (laughs) And quote, (laughs) that is exactly what happened. End quote. And then the young couple lived happily from then on. (laughs) (laughs) For Eero's mother found enough satisfaction in all the suffering she had inflicted on Marula and left her alone from then on. The end. The end. She's like, you know what? This girl suffered enough for me to be satisfied. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, okay, I guess I'll let this go for now until somebody else pops their mouth off about how somebody's hotter than me. Yeah. Such... A horrific tale with a surprisingly happy for almost everyone ending. Yeah. So a few things just for information wise, like around this, before we get back to talking about the magic mirrors of it all. There's a story that we have not told yet on the podcast that is from the Brothers Grimm and it is the maiden without hands. In that story, Mm. a father has to cut off his daughter's hands for reasons. Maybe someday we'll talk about that story. So that motif, while is the first time we've talked about it, like on the podcast is not too wildly out there. Unfortunately, (laughs) Um, it's like, that's not a great one. And also Maria Tatar mentions kind of, because you would, you would been like, Oh, the, the monk, like what? So her note on that is, The guardian angel in the form of a monk who protects her is most likely a Christian overlay to a pagan story about sexual jealousy and its evils. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense. That's kind of what I would imagine. Yeah. We've, yeah, because I'm like, we've talked about that before of like, sometimes when like, you know, like a random Christian man appears for no reason, it's this story got hit by Christianity and like morphed because it's not a crossover that i think of or see very often is like 
Well, I mean, I guess I say this and then I'm thinking of like the Bible, but it's like, you know, like the Greek Christian <laughs> crossover is not what, and I'm, I mean with like yeah, yeah, yeah. Greek mythological characters and like Christian characters. Yeah. That's not, I mean, you know, in the Bible, like they were in Greece, lots of those like apostles and whatever, but that's a, you know, that's a different thing because the mother of Eros does not appear once in that story as far as I can remember. Yeah. So the, at the beginning of that story, the golden apple, especially being a plot piece by one of the Greek gods uh, or goddesses. And specifically Aphrodite, which was not Aphrodite, one of the yeah. like, it was like between Aphrodite and Athena. They were like, which one's hotter, Aphrodite or, or Athena? And Aphrodite was the one that like won that vote. Yeah. So it was like she got the idea from the apple of discord. From back yeah. in the day. She's like, you know what? I'm remembering something from back in the day. She's like, there's a useful item and it is an apple. But it's interesting because in this story, she's using it to poison. Yeah. And so it's like here where we're seeing a kind of morph of like, it's not a, it's golden in color in the story, but edible in yeah. this. And so, yeah, it's gone from this little like pawn piece, a prize to being now a tool of poison. So redirecting our conversation back to mirrors. So in this story, we saw Aphrodite using the mirror to like reflect into the sun. So she's talking to the sun, but she's using this mirror. And this story is really interesting just because it is in this we're used to hearing it, Greek god stories. Like we had a brief conversation about this while you were retelling the story. We in, I think, like, American culture especially, but more, like, globally, like, the we are used to globally hearing stories about Greek mythology and Greek gods and figures mm -hmm. as characters in old Greek mythology. And we're less used to hearing them in kind of in-between later stories yeah. where we have them still being relevant in the story, because again, this story was recorded in like 1872. So this story was kicking around with these characters that are the Greek gods and goddesses at the same time that we have a monk like shoved in there. And so it's just like kind of a different way that we've encountered these like characters before. So I thought it was interesting that we have a mirror in use, but at the same time, talking to the sun. So really quickly, if you were to look up who the like god of the sun was at like in Greek mythology, one of the first that you will encounter is Helios. But Helios and his sister, Selene, who was the goddess of the moon, they actually like were never worshipped to the same level as like a lot of the other gods and goddesses were. So eventually those two kind of fade into the background of the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. And instead the sun god became more identified as a more powerful god, Apollo, and subsequently Selena got less powerful and was replaced by Apollo's sister, Artemis as the goddess of the moon. All of that to say, guess what Apollo is a god of? Divination. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, that 
it's it's just like it's so wild and it's so perfect but it's because it is like oh why is she holding a mirror and talking to the sun we have these like two elements happening like at the same time and it's like she's using the mirror to communicate with apollo the god of divination yeah because we might recall like the oracle of delphi the oracle of delphi was at the temple of apollo because he is the oh my god he's the god of like divinations and so you know it just kind of brings it full circle the most important function of this item which is why it doesn't have to be a mirror right as long as in the culture it functions as a divination tool right the thing that kind of throws me off about this that i'm learning from this episode of the podcast that is like just now kind of sinking into my brain is like divination when i think of divination i very much think of like seeing the future predicting the future ah more so than the broader definition that you have brought up today, which is like knowledge that you don't know, like access to knowledge that you don't have yourself, like, you know, through whatever, through whatever magical or whatever means, like that is what divination is. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense why, again, like this would be considered divination because it's like, oh, who is the most beautiful woman in the world? Doesn't seem like it's like a predictor about the future. So it doesn't seem like what I would think of with divination, but it is like information that she could not possibly know because she doesn't know everybody in the entire world. She could not make that judgment herself, nor could she be, you know, in any way objective about it because she thinks it's her. Yeah. She's hoping it's her. She's she's convinced that it's going to be her. And she's very mad when she finds out that it's not her. I'm glad that you pointed that out because it is, um, I think that that's a pretty common thing that like the idea of divination is so much focused on the like the seeing the future part and less so on the hidden knowledge yeah. part that you're trying to discover through supernatural means hidden knowledge discovering something of the unknown and it is like the you know because it usually is who's the most beautiful woman in the world it's normally hidden knowledge because the heroin is legitimately being hidden yeah uh for whatever reason and so i'm glad that you brought that up because it is like wait we're talking about divination but they're not reading the future she just is prettier right now right and it's also relates to like i think relates to use of the word divination that i have heard before but it still is like less common probably just in my experiences of using divination and those means to like locate like hidden items like treasure or locating a hidden city or you know like yeah locating something that is hidden it's like it's not the future that you're looking for you're just looking for something that you don't know how to find which i mean obviously the future falls under that because like we can't know the future because we're not there yeah but i I do like that it's like divination is a much broader term and i'm like uh, appreciating that a lot more and then also appreciating the function that a mirror has in certain cultures to be used for divination yeah and this is not even touching on scrying. Mm. Which I know you have to be a level 12 wizard before you can access scrying. <laughs> yeah, no, it does sound like that. I pulled like that out that. of my butt. It does sound like that. So scrying, also called like peeping, it's the practice of looking into some kind of medium, like a crystal ball, in the hope of seeing visions or, you know, communicating with something in, in another world, looking into the future. And one of the tools for scrying that is 
often used are things that are like reflective, refractive, translucent, luminous. So it goes into like, yeah, crystal balls, peep stones, and mirrors, things made of glass. So like in the same way that mirrors are used for like scrying, people might be more familiar with like Bloody Mary Mm. and looking into a mirror and saying some enchantment to get Bloody Mary to like come out of the mirror at you. It's that same kind of a, like a situation. So barely scratching on that, uh, we can see how mirrors in different cultures serve the use of divination that is necessary. But also for our time, the way that mirrors serve another purpose is the vanity portion of it, turning this into a story that is very much about beauty and fading beauty. So I will leave us with a quote by Maria Tatar in her book, The Fairest of Them All. The mirror reflects back to the queen an image of beauty, integrity, and autonomy, but it is also a reminder of temporality. The image that looks back at us from a mirror is subject to change. Ephemeral and marked by mortality, beauty may appear to mask death, but its image, both in the mirror and on the face of Snow White in her coffin, has a sinister side, reminding us that everything is subject to decay and must die. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Some people do need a better ending software on their mouth. (laughs) Yeah, me.